Welcome, I am Anders Bolling. This is Mind the Shift, where we talk about a shifting world and shifting minds. When talking about the fate of humankind and its endeavor to, to build a better world, it is hard to avoid the climate issue. The mainstream says that the problem is immense and has to be dealt with promptly and drastically. But all along, there have been voices who beg to differ to a larger or lesser extent. Sometimes they've been dismissed as deniers, but uh, those who have delved into the science, the facts and the trends, but also the p politics and the economy of the matter, they don't deny climate change, of course, which is a contradiction in terms since the climate always changes. But they point to a number of trends and facts that tell a less dramatic story. This year, in the midst of another apocalyptic story, the pandemic, a number of climate skeptical books have been published. Michael Schellenberger's Apocalypse Never and Björn Lomborg's False Alarm came out almost simultaneously during the summer. The third one is written by my guest today, Vítislav Kremlik. He is a historian and sociologist from the Czech Republic who has studied the so-called postmodern mix of science and politics. And Kremlik has a popular blog and is a frequent guest on Czech radio and TV shows where he discusses climate issues. His book is entitled A Guide to the Climate Apocalypse, How the Merchants of Fear Forged a New Religion. Welcome to the show, Vitislav. Nice to be here. Thank you. Uh, so I've been able to read a sample of this book of yours, but it, it still isn't out on the shelves, is it? Not yet. Not yet. So when, when will it be released? Uh, hopefully it should be by, by Christmas if everything goes right. Okay. That's good. Uh, you were invited, uh, you have mentioned you were invited to a climate debate in Slovakia last year, but the invitation was, was later withdrawn. Can you explain yeah, why? This is an interesting uh, thing, like uh, <clears throat> I was invited uh, by a host who organizes debates about many uh, sensitive issues like vaccination and anti-vax movement, things like that. Uh, but in none of the topics, they uh, faced such a hostility and intolerance to different opinion other than the climate change. So they, they, they wanted uh, me to debate some climate scientists and they couldn't find like anyone, like whenever Nobody they- Nobody wanted to debate against you. No, they just don't want to debate thing. Uh, they just, you know, said, yes, I would like to come there. Uh, then when they heard that this guy is going to be on the other side, they just refused to. And mm. well, I, I think I understand why, because you know, uh, the mainstream narrative is that the climate skeptics are just the crazy deniers. But mm. if you really de debate one and you can hear that they have sort of reasonable arguments. So it's a, it is a, it's a situation when the mainstream cannot win because either you give the skeptics uh, some equal treatment. So you treat them as equals and you debate them and then you validate their narrative or, uh, and then you either agree with the skeptic by which you are getting compromised in your community or you just are defeated by the skeptic because he points to some little problems that the mainstream has and then you lose too. So they don't want to debate anyone. Okay. And but it's so also mean, part- in, in a way you say, you're saying that they know that they're, they, they're actually not quite right here. And that's why they don't want to debate it. Or, I mean, that's, that's a bit harsh to say really, but is it, is it like that? Well, uh, there are two things. Like there is this uh, journalistic or activist narrative, which claims that climate change is real and only deniers deny that. And this is crazy idea that it's very easy to disprove. We don't deny climate change. We have never denied that. And so this is not what the de debate is about. And it, it's easy to win against these people, okay? And the other thing is that we criticize the IPCC, that some, some of the 
malpractice by some of the scientists. And this really sometimes happens, you know, scientists are also human, so you can always point out to some mistakes or fraud that they have done. Mm. And then again, you cannot really just defeat the skeptic and claim that they are just crazy because they have some, they are wrong on something or they are right on other things. And this just like another debate, but they want mm. to frame it as reason versus crazy denier cranks and you cannot allow any debate because in a debate when you really face the people so this narrative will just fall apart yeah because i mean a debate a, a true debate uh, an honest debate isn't really about winning or losing is it i mean it's about learning things in my in my worldview anyway yeah from the other side and 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 growing together if, if you want to be a bit philosophical about it yeah, this, the point is that, that most of the things between the alarmists and skeptics are quite, they are quite complementary. That just doesn't mean that if skeptics are right on something, that, that doesn't mean that the alarmists are not right on anything. You mm -hmm. could come to some sort of consensus, but that is not desirable either. Because, for example, if you look at the, the issue of nuclear power, right? So most climate skeptics are pro-nuclear because they want, on the cultural and, on, and economic level, the skeptics want economic growth, they want prosperity, so they will support any powerful source of energy. And some of the climate scientists also support nuclear, just, just few of them, uh, because it's zero carbon power source. Yeah. But the activists, they absolutely hate nuclear power. They will not allow that. This is an important issue. That's also what mm. Michael Schellenberger writes about, mm. that the real problem is not the debate between the activists and skeptics, it's actually not very much about climate change in its core. It's about the issue of growth, the economic growth. Is it the mm. right thing or is it the bad thing? If their priority, their top priority really was the climate change, they would support new nuclear power plants and they would support new hydro power plants, new dams. Mm. But in the real fact, their priority is not climate change. It's the economy. They do not want economic growth. They have this Malthusian type of thinking that growth is like cancer, that is, it's disbalance. You know, they see growth mm. as disbalance. Uh, so in fact, the, uh, the main obstacle in the path to real decrease in carbon dioxide emission. The real obstacle are not the, quote, deniers, unquote. It's not the deniers mm. who are the obstacle. It is the green movement. Because of the green movement, not a single hydropower dam was built in the US since 1990. Mm. Because of them, no nuclear power plants are built anywhere in the Western world. You know, but these are the, the only two powerful sources of energy that have virtually zero carbon footprint. And the Greenpeace people are in the way of that. So it's kind of ironic, you might you might say. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a paradox. And this whole debate is full of paradoxes. And you can understand them only if you just move away from the debate about temperatures and degrees and look at the bigger picture, you know. Uh, so this is actually dispute not about temperature. I think it's basically dispute about how you interpret modernity, how you interpret the last two centuries of development mm -hmm. when we abandoned feudal system and we embraced industrial capitalism. This thing brought about tremendous growth, prosperity. We almost eradicated poverty. This is unbelievable. Like in the last 50 years, in the, the, the extreme poverty, it used to be about 40 or 50% of the population in the middle of the 20th century. And now it's just about 10% of global population who live in yeah. extreme poverty. This yeah. is happening. This is amazing progress, okay? But there are some people who say that economic growth is not a good thing because it does have some side effects and there is some pollution or something like that. And they want to stop that. And this is the dispute. How do, how, how do we interpret the last two centuries? Is it the story of progress? Or is it the story of economic, of uh, environmental and climatic holocaust? How do you 
you know, there are two conflicting narratives about society. There were some some Swedish uh, authors who wrote a book uh, called The Doomsday uh, Clock, I think it was called. But anyway, mm. they, they were talking about the doomsday industry, a doomsday industry that uh, sounds like what you're talking about. So it's th th these people, the, or you talk about the merchants of fear, of course, that they're using um, climate issue as a means to criticize actually modernity and, and uh, industrialization and all those things. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, this is what, this is what I think. Okay. And uh, uh, you can see that even recently you have had these things like Greta Thunberg and her, her attitude to like that, that we should be ashamed and this million, these millennials who think that the post-war boomer generation, this older generation that they should be ashamed because they destroy the planet, you know. But actually, if you look at the economy, so after World War II, the global economy experienced something that is called the great acceleration, by which we mean great acceleration of economy. And the prosperity that was in England in the late 19th century suddenly became a global phenomenon. This is why poverty is, is on the verge of almost being eradicated. Okay? So this is what the post-war boomer generation achieved. These people, this generation who fought in the war and they had to rebuild this world, they, 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 they built with their hard work something amazing. It's a miracle. If you look at a thousand of years of human experience with civilization, so this is amazing. Hmm. We have actually liberated ourselves from the Malthusian trap of constant cycles of famine and, and malnutrition, and we have liberated ourselves. And now, and this is what I call the greatest paradox of all, now the generation that has been liberated from all the suffering, so they are complaining like, oh damn, we have to live in this, this dirty uh, consumer civilization, this awful consumerist materialism, you know, and they complain about that in, in the cafe, in the, but they, they have a cafe that costs, I don't know, uh, half of uh, uh, laborers weekly wage okay they sit in their luxury cafes and they complain about how this system is awful yeah. this is the well, the young always complained uh, complained about what the, their parents and grandparents have done all obviously but that well, is true yeah i i get what you're saying and in and, and you have an interesting point uh, I really think, uh, but of course, then if 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 climate change were as as serious as these people claim, then what you're saying wouldn't be worth as much, of course, because then it wouldn't be sustainable. So then, then we would have to criticize it anyway. All be, I mean, in spite of the fact that it's taken us out of poverty, if it were as dangerous as they say, like I mean, if we don't if we don't squeeze the emissions to zero within 20 years, we will all die. Then, I mean, it's a different story, of course, but then naturally you don't, you don't believe that, so. If this was the case, however, you would need to embrace all powerful zero carbon sources like nuclear power, which they don't, right? That's true. So mm -hmm. that's their contradiction there. So yeah. that's what Schellenberger says, they don't want nuclear, because if you just take this technical solution, then you don't need to rebuild the whole social system. No, then you no. wouldn't need to destroy this whole social system of modernity. You wouldn't have to no, it's reform everything. Right? Yeah. Well, let's come, come back to the, the psycholo psychology and, and, and the human traits around these issues. I myself, I've followed this, uh, the climate issue, climate conversation and, and the science for, for decades. And uh, I, I've written quite a bit about it. In, in books, uh, but mainly in, in articles and in a blog that I had, you, you always also have, have a, a popular blog and I had one for five years and I wrote quite a few pieces about climate, climate change. And, and uh, I have my, my own favorite skeptical bits like the trends for extreme weather events and uh, uh, false, uh, false concepts like um, climate refugees that aren't really a thing. So everyone has 
their favorites, I guess. Uh, you and you are, I mean, almost every aspect of this huge issue is covered in your book. And you dedicate a large chunk of it uh, to discussing the forces behind this alarmism. And I, I was thinking on beforehand that I shouldn't ask too much about the technical issues or the, 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 the scientific issues, but maybe the listen, many of the listeners aren't as, uh, they don't know as much about the, the, the actual facts as, as maybe you and I do. So, mm -hmm. so let's dive a little bit into that anyway. And let's start off with what is at the core here, the Earth's temperature. Uh, you, in your book, you compare the warnings of a warming world with Orwell's 1984, you know, where war is peace and freedom is slavery and all that. And you, you, you write that climate optimum is crisis. So, and you stress, of course, that warmth is better than cold, which is uh, easy to agree with. And it's obvious that the temperatures has, has gone up a bit since the 19th century. Mm -hmm. But how can you say that this, what we are having right now is is an optimum? Uh, well, even the official models of climate change agree that the warming up to now has been mostly beneficial to the global economy and that even future about one or two degrees will still be beneficial to the global economy. And even some more warming would be beneficial, but there will be differences in different countries according to how far from the equator you are. So we, even according to the official data, this is still the optimum. Hmm. Uh, what I write, what I like to use is the reference to the bond events. This is a climate change cycle that has some one and a half thousand years. And in this cycle, some cooling periods come back. We're not really sure why some solar changes, changes in some earth parameters. It's not quite clear yet, but uh, earth climate did have similar cycle in the, even in the last ice age, like in the last glacial, when it was called differently. Uh, so this is a stable feature of the Earth system. It fluctuates ups and down. It cools and warms and cools and warms. And the most recent cold period was uh, between the end of Middle Ages and the 19th century. It is called Little Ice Age, it was a very yeah, little yeah. tiny ice age. Hmm. And this is what ended in the 19th century. So we are coming back to the, to the warmth that we did have in Middle Ages or the Roman period and so on. And in the past, in the millennia, in the, in the millennia of uh, past history, we have seen that the warm periods were when civilization flourished and the cold periods coincide with the worst conflicts like 30 years, 30 years war, things like that, or the great migrations when the Huns with Attila invaded Europe. These large migrations usually were started by cooling, which led to some local climate change and the people had to either adapt or to move somewhere else mm. because of the agriculture had problems, you know. And these crises always appear during the cold times, not during the warm times. So this is my Which is start. opposite to the, to the narrative that you this hear today. This is the opposite of what we hear now. This is what surprises me because this is how I, uh, how I started. I just studied, uh, I was interested in how these climate changes uh, in the past affected human migrations, you know, and this is what I learned. And then I watch the news and I, then they tell me the exact opposite. Hmm. And I'm just flabbergasted what the hell is happening, you know? So this yeah. is where I started uh, debating this. But the point is that 19th century, okay? So this, this bond event ends and it starts warming again. At the same time, you have industrial revolution when people burn coal and they emit greenhouse gases. And this happens at the same time. So you basically don't know which is the reason, which is the cause and effect, and which is just a false correlation, which is just yeah. this. So this Co is coincidence, basically. basically. Coincidence. So you, 
well, not, you cannot be really sure uh, which one is which. And people decide according to their cultural, economical beliefs, what they want to believe. Data is not that much clear. I can tell you some things are certain. We know that the temperatures now are sort of similar to the Middle Ages, maybe a little bit warmer, maybe a little tiny bit colder, but it's basically quite similar. There are some things that are certain, but we just because there is a lot of uncertainty, so this is why they often speak about consensus because you, know, you always use appeal to a consensus when things are not clear. You never yeah. hear there is a scientific consensus that two plus two equals four. You never hear that. <laughs> no. You just know this. So. That's true. Well, this, this thing about the Little Ice Age is really fascinating. I, I've also been intrigued by why this isn't pointed out more in the in the discussions because, uh, well, this is only audio, so we, we, we don't have any charts to show the audience here. But But if I just try to explain how it looks. It goes up, as you say, from the middle of the 19th century. The, the, the graph uh, goes up uh, slightly. And as particularly from 1910 to 1940, it goes up quite a bit. And then it's flat or actually going a little bit down until yeah. about 1980. And then it, 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 gets, it starts increasing a little bit more clearly. So the first uh, increase there from, or the first increases or the, the first period of increase couldn't really have that much to do with carbon dioxide in, in my worldview and I, I guess in yours too, because mm. I mean, it was just simply too little at that time, mm. too little emissions. So, so, so what, how, it, it must be a rebound from the little ice age. It couldn't be anything else, could it? Yeah, this is, this is what I think. So. And then, then the question is what, well, how, for how long is that rebound continuing? Is it still continuing? And is it is going to continue for a hundred more years or we don't, we, we don't really know, do we? Yeah, so we could have a reasonable debate about these open questions and it could be fair and square. You can just disagree, right? But the problem is that this became political and you can see the emotions of hatred against the system and you know people dislike capitalism and this bad weather is caused by capitalism. And this is where the emotion comes from. And then you cannot have a reasonable debate you have what we are living in the times of the cancel culture. You know, if you think something else, then the orthodoxy you are disinvited. And, uh, so, yeah, that's that is the real problem. Yeah, the and then yeah. So the, the, talking about consensus, there was a few years ago, or it's still it still pops up now and then, this uh, concept of the ninety seven percent. The notion of the 97% of the climate uh, science scientists say that we have a dangerous climate change going on, you know, uh, this thing. What's your take on that? Because, I mean, just to, to d dive a little bit deeper into the, the subject from your book here, uh, I, I wonder if, if you think it's groupthink or if there are some more sinister forces at play, because you referenced in the book to, to the massive scientific support for eugenics in the early uh, 20th century, which is which is really amazing, actually. Uh, so, what do you think? Is it just groupthink, or is it is it something more sinister going on? Oh, well, first of all, this 97 percent of scientists, or actually, I, I would say 100 percent of scientists, agree that climate is changing. Humans do emit emissions, and so they naturally must contribute something. But that's the false narrative, you know. This is not what is debated. Nobody questions that, you know. But the activists claim that we deny that, which is not true. So this is bogus, not worth mentioning. Hmm. Uh, uh, this, what you mentioned about eugenics, I'm trying to put the climate change alarmism into the context of the longer history of alarmism. And we could hear a lot about consensus already a century ago when there was amazing and overwhelming scientific consensus about what is now called scientific racism. This is now considered a pseudoscience that was for, based on very silly statistical mistakes. And like they were measuring the shape of your skull, your head, 
and they were trying to use it as indicated whether you are Aryan enough or not, which doesn't work in fact, you know, it's just, they didn't understand this, the, the real biology behind that. But based not. on this very weak science, uh, they were just making very large and ambitious claims about how, how we must save our race uh, soon. And you could hear the same languages today, like the time is running out. We must act now. There is no time to wait for more evidence. Exactly the same alarmist language. Again, the statistics was very weak. Like the people were even trying to find genetic cause for some personality traits that are not genetic. Like for example, there was this very funny study which tried to find genetic reasons why some people uh, become sailors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. You know, they wanted to find some thalassophilia gene. Mm -hmm. And this is not the point. Uh, people from uh, marine or sailor families become sailors because it's in their environment, because of what yeah. they see in their life. It's not genetic, right? But they were making false correlations. It was all based on these very shoddy statistics. But again, it was an overwhelming, there was an overwhelming consensus. This is not just like, you know, today they say that Hitler was just a crazy madman, this isolated lunatic. This is not true. He was acting on an overwhelming scientific bogus consensus of those times. You know, scientific racism was mainstream. Uh, the eugenic societies uh, had members from the best VIPs, cultural heroes and uh, philanthropists. This was considered a good thing, eugenics. Mm. Now we see that as something awful and horrible, but in those times, it was something, you know, it had very similar social position as environmentalism today. If you want to show that you are a good guy, you will, when you are an actor, for example, so you will support environmental cause and you think you are doing a good thing. Century ago, the same people supported eugenics and they had the good feeling about that. And they didn't know this would end so badly because this, you know, when you want to regulate these alleged problems, so you need more government input, you want, you need, and this, this usually can get out of hand. You give too much power to the authoritarians to solve the problem, and then it gets out of hands. And then you are all surprised how awfully it ended. We know how eugenics led to the Nazi extermination programs, which is certainly not what uh, the eugenic uh, proponents wanted in the first place. I don't believe that's what Svante Arrhenius wanted, you know? Like the, no. the father of the greenhouse effect was also one of the founders of the- Okay, so he was on the eugenics team as well. Okay, in, I didn't in Sweden. He didn't want some death camps, of course, but it got out of hand. And now we have got the green movement that also, I believe, had good intentions, but what are the outcomes? If you look out at the, uh, the biofuels, how the support to biofuels led to food being burned as fuel instead of being sold in the market. So the, there was a food shortage in the developing countries and the famine was created and people had nothing to eat. And it was the first time for decades when the malnutrition levels actually increased for a couple of years. Right? Yes, back in 2011, I think, something like that, 11, 12. Yeah, that's right. So I because think. Because of the, 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 yeah, the, the cultivation of the um, uh, biofuels for ethanol. I, I, yeah, that's, that's right. So again, you've got some good intentions and mm. it backfires. Uh, good intentions are not enough. You have to have some common sense. And like, uh, if you look at our, I don't know, Corona crisis, which I don't know very much about, but again, uh, the safety measures are probably needed, but again, they backfire. And because of the lockdowns and economic closures, it is expected that in poor countries, the malnutrition and poverty levels will rise up to the levels uh, we haven't seen for 20 years, right? Mm. So again, we have got good intentions, 
but people will suffer because you didn't think it through. Well, so you have good intentions, maybe, but 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 it's lousy science, and it's actually in this case. Well, when you talk about COVID nineteen, I was going to ask you about that, but you you, you start talking mm. about it now, which is which is excellent uh, because I wonder what what's your take on this. Um, they, there is still, I mean, th- th- there is not that that uh, enormous consensus around the COVID nineteen thing because it's so new. It's it's just it's just happened. So there are actually quite a lot of epidemiologists and other scientists that are against lockdowns, for instance. But it seems as if the, the politicians all over the world, like, I mean, it's it's really it's really fascinating to see how quickly almost every country decided to act in the same way. To, uh, to put in place very, very harsh measures like uh, mandatory face masks and lockdowns without having the scientific grounds for this, actually. So I think it's... Uh, but how, if you compare this to the, to the climate debate, where do you see similarities and where do you see differences? Uh, I haven't studied so much about it as about climate change, so I'm not sure. I just wanted to point out that the precautionary principle in all these cases can really backfire. And the people who think that you cannot do anything wrong by being a little bit careful, it's not true, you know, by- uh, Well, a little bit careful, but I mean- Yeah, but- uh, You're not being a little bit careful, they're being a lot careful. It's it's often when you don't balance the costs and benefits, so Mm. we can do more harm than, than, than good by these precautionary measures. And the same thing is with climate change. And I've got one more thing to add about the COVID-19, which is related to the climate change. So we have seen tremendous downturn in economy, right? Lockdowns everywhere, factories, restaurants closed. So the green people, I don't mean the extraterrestrials, I mean the green people. <laughs> yes. So the, the, the green people believe that this would bring an amazing Good thing, you know, like each cloud has a silver lining, this kind of speech. They believe that this crisis would bring salvation of climate, that emissions would go down and climate change would be saved. Well, it's not happening. It's not happening. If if you look at the, how the carbon dioxide measures are, uh, carbon dioxide levels are measured, the Mauna Loa in Hawaii, the measurements for, Since yeah, the, the, the level, the momentaneous level yeah, in the, in yeah, the atmosphere. They measure it every year, and it still has risen since last year, okay? And it still is rising. And the reason why this economic downturn is not even visible there, it's not even visible in the data. And you know why? Because most, most of the fluctuation between seasons is through natural, it's the natural cycle, it's the natural reasons. Mm-hmm. And only the little tiny tip of the curve is the human input. So mm. this is why you cannot see that. Okay. So, so you mean that you mean to say that even in two or three years from now, we would we wouldn't see a downturn on that graph, the Mauna Loa graph? Hardly ever, because we still add something. We haven't reached emissions to zero. We just lowered our emissions to the level that was a couple of years ago the normal. Yeah, but it's yeah, okay. even now it's still higher than 20 years ago, right? Yeah, yeah. So just uh, these are together. the things that Björn, yeah, sorry, sorry, go yeah, ahead. Uh, so you just put it together. This, this, is, this is supposed to be the greatest economic recession since World War II, maybe, who knows? And really people lose their livelihoods, uh, their businesses are closed, people become jobless which is fine because people in the poor countries, they will die of hunger, right? Mm. Just, they have a bigger problem than Everything is relative. But even with all these consequences, it still doesn't really save the climate. So imagine how tremendous destruction of life and economy we would need to really turn carbon dioxide emissions to zero. Yeah. That would be like, obliteration of everything. Yeah, that's what Björn Lomborg talks a lot about in his books. This is, yeah. So this is just- Enormous, enormous amount of of cut downs that we can't even imagine it. And and it really really contributes almost nothing to to the- You could see the Green New Deal 
like an example of what the Green New Deal would look like if it really was supposed to be efficient. On the other hand, I mean, you could envisage a zero emission future. I, I think we all want that in, in, the, in the long, long run, even sure. people like you and me, because, uh, uh, I mean, burning fossil fuel isn't really that sophisticated. So we really we want to phase that out. But if we do it in a, in a proper and, and natural organic way and, and we have all these beautiful inventions and we eventually come up with some smart energy, we will eventually reach the zero emission uh, situation, I think. But that's, I mean, and then we, would, we wouldn't get poor because then all these innovations would, would lead us to become richer uh, instead. Uh, but yeah, sure. I mean, then we're talking about maybe 100 years from now or so. So that's a different story. But what you're saying now is that if we were going to, if we wanted to follow the, 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 the what you call the greens, the, the vision of the greens, that would entail us cutting down to zero emissions within maybe 10 or 20 years. And then we would see this catastrophic uh, economic. Mm. Yeah, but this is because this Malthusian thinking doesn't like the focus on prosperity and growth. They just don't think this is the right thing. No, okay. Even yeah. you have got this, uh, green thinkers warning us that if every person on this planet had American living standards, we wouldn't have enough resources on the planet. So therefore we need to keep the poor people poor or what? You know, this yeah. is this, this Good is question. Like, what do they mean by this claim? Like we would need four planets if everybody was supposed to have American living standards. Mm. What sort of thinking is that? This is exactly Malthusian thinking, like even the Reverend Malthus proposed very draconic measures, how to keep people poor in order to prevent overpopulation. You know, so there is this continuity yeah. in this. Yeah, and in the darkest scenario, we're back, back to eugenics almost, if you extrapolate that thought. In a way, possibly, yes. Uh, this, is about, mm. this all leads to, this always leads, all, all these little problems always have, they always come with the same solution, you know. Mm. We need more control yeah. of everything. We need more control of in individual's life, control of population and so on. All little tiny excuses for the same objective. Yeah, so who Whose agenda is this? Why the fear mongering? You now mentioned Greta Thunberg. Greta Thunberg. Why does she say the things she says? And uh, so, where does it all come from? Is it a human trait? Because I think there is a human factor, a human trait factor, uh, a, a property of the human mind, uh, namely to scan for dangers. Uh, there's a negativity bias, not least in the media. I, I've been working as a journalist for decades, so I know the negativity bias in the media, but, but journalists are also human beings, and there is a negativity bias generally, I think. Um, or are these, as you call the merchants of fear, taking advantage of, and these, these are your words from the book, uh, taking mm -hmm. advantage of our stupidity, or maybe it was some other place you wrote this, but anyway, mm -hmm. taking advantage of our stupidity, not being able to distinguish relative risks from absolute risks, and not being able to separate trends from events. And if so, in that case, do the merchants do this wittingly? And what is then their agenda? That's a big question. Well, I would like to say that this is not about a conspiracy theory. This is about things that, that we know that have always been here. Like this is just a new version of the ancient thing. This is like, it is a bad weather outside, so the god is angry with us. There is a storm. It means that the witch has caused that, so we must burn the witch. He caused the hailstorm. Mm. Or we, we have sinned. We are sinners, so this is nature's wrath or God's wrath. So weather and natural disasters have always been used as a tool for social control. For, since forever. You know, by whom? By whom? By the people who run the world, by, by the ruling class. They need to uh, use our fear to keep the population under control. This is not a new thing. The, the, the new thing is that we thought that we have, uh, we have got rid of that 
and now it's the superstition uh, that we have got rid of that, but now it's coming back and it's disguised as if it was science. But it's the whole thing. It's the old thing. Like yeah, but the, the people Aztecs... that are who are afraid. I mean, you're talking about the, the the guys who are ruling countries and ruling things. But the people who are scared are ordinary people. Like, I mean, Greta Thunberg. You might mm. say that she's not an ordinary person. But there there are millions of people out there who are really afraid. Uh, so that's that's a real thing. But you mean that they have been they have been. Um, uh, seduced so to speak to... i know what you want to say and yeah. i agree so this ruling class have always been using some sort of our psychology that's you know uh, people have always been prone to believing such things because human brain is, is not the computer and we are not able to discern the the real laws of nature uh, for example i don't know uh, very usual example is the flight, uh, the fear of flying. Okay, so yeah. many people are afraid to fly. They will travel by plane or drive their car. They are not scared to death, but when they fly by plane, they are terrified. Some of them, although it is not supported by statistics, the uh, the, the rate of deaths per one hundred thousand flights is very small compared to accidents on the road. So this is that we, this, uh, why are we so bad at uh, estimating risks? Because we, our brain is much more impressed by single dramatic events than by some boring statistics. When there is a plane crash, it's on the news the whole week. They speak about it the whole week, right? One mm. single crash. It's a, it's a news. Everybody remembers the 19... 75 something plane crash, but nobody remembers the 100,000 dead people on the road when they were driving drunk, you know, because that's, that's a normal thing. Mm. So we, people do not follow statistics. They just follow the individual dramatic trends. Uh, this, this sort of statistical misunderstanding that people have in their brains uh, this is, of course, not used just about climate change or things like that. This is also misunderstanding in other issues. I can, I know, um, crime, immigration, violence. for example. You know, like immigration, like in in the U.S., uh, the crime rate connected with illegal immigration from Mexico to the U.S. It was a big problem in the 80s, maybe 90s, and then it decreased. So the trend is decreasing. This is not such a big problem as it was in the past, but still you can take a single, some terrible crime that happened last year, mm. and you can point out to that, and people will be thinking that it still is a problem, or they will think that the problem is rising, although it's yeah. falling, you know, people focus on dramatic events. Just like with weather, uh, this, is, this is the most atrocious form of misinformation by the climate activists, then mm. they point out to a storm or, or a tornado or something, mm. and they say, look, it's climate change. It's I a know, cause yeah. It's so you. ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. Every single storm is, is uh, depicted as uh, a, a result exactly. of climate change. This, this anecdotal evidence that they're using all the time, that's the curse of the climate. And I, journalists do it all the time. And they don't often, I mean, they don't, many journalists, they don't have a clue. They don't know the science. They don't know what they're writing about. They just... To just, uh, I mean, yeah, convey what they hear from from the activists. Um, that is the point that probably a lot of the people, or maybe most of the people, who are these peddlers of fear, who just spread this narrative, they just uh, they just repeat something they have heard somewhere. They are, they yeah. do not have some evil intentions, you know. And mm. just this is what everybody says, so I will say it too. It's just the normal thing. Yeah. And if you look at this girl from Sweden, it's Greta. Mm. So mm -hmm. she just repeats what she has heard somewhere. It's not sure. her own invention, right? No. Not her fault. And it's really sad that she's been become so influential. But of course, it's it's very she's very photogenic and it's very cool yeah. to have a seventeen year so old. So this is not the question, you know. Greta is a non-event, but you yeah. should ask why is she a normal girl? Why is she invited to Davos? Why is she invited this non-important girl from middle of nowhere? She's invited to the international conferences. Why, by whom, for what purpose? 
That is the question. How is it possible that the elites of the Western world have embraced this Malthusian ideology? That is the question. Yeah, I think, well, if she's used for malicious uh, ends, then it's really bad. But I can, I can understand why you are, I mean, I, I, I can feel some, some kind of sympathy for the, the, the notion, the, the, the idea that you, that you lift up some ordinary person who says what mm. you conceive as truths. Uh, mm. But Well, in this case, you and I don't think that Greta Thunberg tells the truth because we, we know that she, she says things that aren't really actually not correct. But, but I mean, uh, so I, I, I'm, I don't have that big of a problem with the concept itself using a person, 17 year old girl mm. Saying things. I mean, you can do that sometimes because I mean, children can be very wise often mm. in some respects. So, uh, but but of course, as you say, inviting her to Davos and uh, to UN, well, it's a little bit ridiculous in the end. So anyway, let's talk a little bit about the um, the, the the structure around this. There, most serious serious skeptics, if I can use that term, I guess I can. <laughs> I just did. They, they recognize the scientific part of the IPCC, the, the, the International Panel of Climate Change, the UN body for, for this uh, thing, as they recognize it as, as fairly reliable, but not the part that summarizes for policymakers. And the IPCC is at the core of this, uh, what, what's, being, what's being conveyed to, to the general public out there. And you and others claim that when this body was created, it was instructed only to look for human explanations for warming. Is that correct? Or how was it, on what basis this was thing, it created? Look, uh, this institution was created within uh, United Nations Environmental Program, U, UNEP, which is a part of, which is a body of the United Nations it was founded in 1972 by Maurice Strong, who is a famous and influential member of the Cup of Rome. And the Cup of Rome are the, they are the authors of the limits to growth. They are the authors of the idea that everything is running out, oil is running out, oil would run out by 1992 and yeah. tin and copper will run out by- Famously miss, so missed those goals, yeah. Right, but they designed environmental, alarmism as, as a political ideology, which is a new thing sort of in the modern civilization. This is a new thing, original thing, unlike you know, communism and these things are the old thing, but this is a new, new idea. And this guy from this organization set up UNEP and they tried different scares and different alarms over the years. And then they came up with this climate change issue and they chose Bert Bollin to head this institution as the first chairman. And he was famous uh, for his ideas how carbon dioxide is dangerous. So this is a change of thinking. Like when Svante Arrhenius uh, uh, was writing about the greenhouse effect a century ago. So he believed that this is a benign, it's, that's a good thing because the greenhouse effect will make earth warmer it will postpone the next ice age. So he, he believed that it's a good thing. Mm. Now, Bert Pollin thinks it's a bad thing. But still, he was a scientist. So the early versions of IPCC were not so radical as today. Uh, but, the, but because he was focused on carbon dioxide. So when you read the whole report, it has got thousands of pages. And there is almost nothing. It's very little about... Uh, changing solar output. There is very little about the natural factors that influence that. Now we have got dozens and dozens pages about various gases in the atmosphere. And there's about two pages about this solar influence. They do not even mention the standard solar activity cycles like Gleisberg cycle and mm. they do not mention these things. It's, they are not interested. So they, I think they do not uh, examine this these natural factors very deeply. So but was it an not... instruction to the creation to to the to the body that was created? Yeah, or because the question Berlin's uh, personal preferences or what was the basic? Uh, well, his preferences is by was... he was chosen by 
the guys up there. He was chosen okay. because of this preference. But okay. this IPCC institution was instructed to examine whether, whether it is possible that human activity uh, is dangerous for climate. Mm. So they answer, yes, it is possible or it's not possible. It's likely, it's not likely, you know, and even when there is uncertainty, they would still say it's likely or very likely. Yeah. Because yeah. that's, they are not asked whether it's possible that it's natural. This is not what the question is. Mm. So they use the uncertainty, the probability language to deal away with uncertainty in science. We, are, we don't know, we are not sure, but it's possible, it's likely. So this is, yeah. there are two yeah. ways, there are two ways how alarmists uh, <clears throat> get rid of uncertainty in science. First, this likelihood language. Yeah. It's, it's probable, it's possible, it's likely. Or they use the precautionary principle, which says that even if we do not have evidence, we still should do something. We shouldn't wait for any evidence. Evidence doesn't matter. So, well, you could you could do that. You could have that uh, approach towards, uh, for instance, an asteroid colliding with with the Earth, because that's sure. <laughs> yes. that's very very likely to happen within a few hundred years, I guess. So why not uh, prepare for that? Yeah, exactly. So mm. this is chosen. Somebody chose that this would be the priority you know like there are many fears and problems and dangers around the world but you always somebody always chooses what is the priority and this has become a priority because this climate change issue very nicely uh, allows you to put together all elements of all little tiny environmental causes and social causes and tie them together neatly in one story which says that the Western society is bad. It also allows you to look at various types of pollution and just pretty nice, nice, mm. nice package. And also we can see that the environmental organizations have slowly just shifted their focus and now they invest most of their energy into lobbying for green sources of energy instead of focusing on chemical leaks and pollution, stuff like that. So yeah, yeah reshifted to, to this thing because here they can have support from these powerful international institutions and they will get funds of course they would get funding and it's a, it's a it's a great for everyone you know everybody of all of people on the other side of the barricades everybody wins because the international institutions can pretend they are useful for something you know like United yeah. Nations was supposed to stop all wars in the world, which somehow hasn't happened yet. So they no, but there are help. fewer. There are fewer actually. <laughs> they, uh, they have. That's also, they have that's also a trend that is not very, very well yeah. recognized. But the trend, uh, the war trend, is actually going down. Anyway, that's a sidetrack. Hopefully, yeah. 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 So they need to show that they are important yeah. and useful. So well, they... this is maybe at at the core also here that people have a need for some some uh, collective narrative some uh, uh, narrative that that, that that combines all the, the 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 bad things that the people are worried about in the world and if you can focus everything on the climate change thing then it makes makes uh, things easier it makes life makes life easier for for, for people who quote unquote want to be worried uh, because i mean the fact of the matter is that there has never been as mass information has never been never before been as massive as massive as it is today uh, which is obvious if you if you think about it and uh, it's never been as easy for someone like yourself or me to to find the facts without having to trust the official sources mm. Uh, but that doesn't seem to help very much, does it? Or I mean, maybe it's maybe the inf information is too massive. Uh, what's what's your take on that? Ah, uh, well, the thing is that although the information, thanks to internet, uh, has never been easier to access, you can even you can be the armchair scientist and study the latest scientific research from your living room. You know, it's easy. Mm -hmm. uh, but most people don't do that. Like most people. If you, if you make a poll, public opinion, a poll of something, so most of the people questioned have never done the research. Many people just quote something from the Facebook because it's funny and they just don't 
dig into uh, the scientific research uh, journals to check that. So most people do not do this. So it's just about some individuals who have free time and are interested, but it still will be a tiny minority. Yeah, about 30 years people, ago, no, it wasn't possible at all. So, I mean, you mm -hmm. couldn't even be an armchair scientist 30 years ago. That's true. The point is that most people from the public still make their decision without the knowledge of any data at all. I think that most people just decide whom to trust based on their political and cultural orientation. Mm. Because you want to believe something and you don't mm. want to believe something. Mm. When you are left-leaning person, you are worried about these dark sides of capitalism and you are prepared to believe that capitalist system destroys the planet because that's yeah. something you have already believed in the past. So mm. you mm. will not examine claims like that because you, it's likely to be true from your point of view. Why examine something that fits into your belief system, right? This is how most people view this. Uh, you, you even have some uh, sociological research confirming that that the difference between alarmists and skeptics is not in their knowledge. It's not like that alarmists are more knowledgeable about science. This is not true. No. In the research uh, that was made by Dan Cahan from the Yale University, they have got this cultural cognition project, it's a very nice one. And they saw that Actually, the people who have the best command of general science, the best general knowledge, among those people, the polarization was actually the biggest mm -hmm. because okay. it, it, was, it, it is not, the, the difference is, is cultural. It's not uh, about that, uh, you know, deniers don't know the science, so they, they are superstitious. No. No. It is not like that. That's not true. No, that's interesting. And, and I believe what you're saying. <laughs> uh, so uh, what about, um, uh, I mean, yeah, what about what's actually happening on the ground, so, 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 to, so to speak, um, is regarding uh, or regardless of what politicians decide or whatever. I mean, you can be critical towards alarmist climate policies and, and climate treaties of different sorts. The question is how important are they really? Because you can also think that, that things develop organically, the society develops uh, as an entity anyway. I mean, there are forces at play because 7.8 billion people live on the planet and they are innovative and they, they wanna do things and work and uh, and, and like you say, most people don't delve into science. Um, some do and some, <laughs> but they want to create things. And anyway, what I'm trying to say is that, that things develop uh, regardless of what politicians do or say sometimes. I think often we put too much focus on the leaders and the politicians. So if, if these uh, things happen anyway, and, and, and maybe the bad fuels are phased out as more sophisticated and environmentally friendly varieties are developed in the future, as we were mentioning before, is, uh, do, do you think that's the case or do we really have to, is it really a problem that we have an alarmist climate policy? Uh, does it mean anything in, in, in the real world? Does it have any significance? Will things develop as they will anyway? It depends where you are. Like in Germany, these green policies have increased the prices of energy very much, but the Germans are a very rich country. So it's not a big deal for them. But if you are in some developing country, South America or Asia or somewhere else, so this in alarmist policy could be the difference between having lunch and dying of hunger, so. Have we seen this? Well, you mentioned the, the yeah, the biofuel thing before. That's, that was one example, yeah. Right, or um, it may not be dying of hunger. It may be just remaining poor because these countries need uh, to develop 
economically, they need some power sources. And if they are forbidden to build some coal plants, which is cheaper or has been cheaper, and if you are forced to, uh, to use only the more sophisticated and more expensive things, so you may not have money to do that, and you will not have the economy running, right? So this is about slowing or stopping the development of the poor countries. So here again, someone might say that environmentalism is actually just another way how to keep the people of color where they are, <laughs> stopping them from advancing forward to reaching our living standards. And you use environmental rhetoric, but the outcome is that they will remain in the bad uh, shape. That's gloomy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you, on the other hand, you, you have, we have seen that during the last decade or two, the so-called climate, or so-called the climate policy policies, politics, policies haven't been very successful. And they say it themselves, the, 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 the alarmists say, say this all the time th themselves that, uh, oh, we haven't been able to fulfill the Kyoto Protocol or the, yeah. uh, the Copenhagen Agreement or the Paris Agreement. Uh, we're still emitting. Uh, so, I mean, it, it seems to, yeah. things seem to <laughs> just go on the way they have anyway, or more or less. Uh, and, yeah. and then slowly there are some inventions and developments when it comes to energy systems and, and uh, there are solar panels being developed and, and uh, all kinds of other kinds of energy sources, which they would have been anyway, perhaps. I mean, uh, yes, even without these incentives that the politicians want to put on them. You know, now I know what you meant by your question. Yeah, that's true. You're absolutely right. Uh, this is what I have also been saying whenever somebody asks me, aren't you afraid that you by opposing the, the policy that, that you are dooming the planet. And I say no, because the policies don't work anyway. So who cares? Yeah. You know, that is the point yeah, here the because point. we have had 30 years of conferences and, and it hasn't, the, the, the greenhouse gases concentration is still rising and it's rising faster and faster. It has been rising faster and faster. So the policies don't matter. They don't work. So it's not if we just uh, dump Kyoto Protocol or Paris Accords, it doesn't change your thing. If you really wanted to change something, you would need to abandon the dogmatic environmentalism. You would have to build new hydropower plants and new nuclear plants and things like that. And you just should be rational, having rational dispute with the skeptics because they some are right about something. But this is what happens when, when democracy just stops working, when you stop debating people, just dogma prevails, irrational dogma, and you just mm. do not have any reasonable policy. It's not possible, you know, mm. and dogma prevails. This is just like with the Marxist system. Like uh, I, I come from uh, Czechoslovakia, which was a communist country, right? And this is the same thing. Like Karl Marx uh, was right on something, wrong on other things. But his followers turned this into a religion and he couldn't debate anything. He couldn't yeah. correct the flaws in the system because then you were a heretic. And mm. then you couldn't repair the system and it just fell apart. Mm. And this is the same thing again. Like this environmental movement is right on something, but they are not willing to discuss their problems. They are becoming, they are turning into a dogmatic religion. And so they are not able to rectify their mistakes. They are heading to just to the, everything falls apart. You think that's going to happen? So you said communism fell apart. Is the climate alarmism also going to fall apart? And uh, just to combine this with a final question I have, what is your vision, if you have a, a, a grander vision for the development of humankind? And what do you think will happen? What's your vision? What do you think will happen with this? I think that this probably, because this ideology is still very strong, okay? It wasn't damaged by climate gate scandal. They still are running the world. Uh, they are still popular with the power elites of the West society. So this is not just going away anytime soon. 
So I think that this is like uh, this is like when we had this communist system in the 1960s. You already could see the problems that are there, but the system still existed for two or three decades without the belief of the people that still survived. And it just fell apart. It wasn't destroyed by its opponents. Basically, it just fell apart due to its own inefficiency and its own inability to reform. And this is very similar. Like they, uh, they say that they want to uh, lower the carbon dioxide emissions and they are not able to do that because uh, their response is too dogmatic and too ideological. They, re they refuse to take any feedback from anybody and somebody wants to give them a feedback. So they just use their cancer culture to destroy the guy's reputation and kick him out of a job. You know, this is not this is not how you create a working society where you can repair your problems in frequent maintenance intervals. You know, always need this maintenance in each society. This is why democracy is still the best of the worst systems because we have got this regular maintenance in the form of some elections. You know, and people just change places, you know. So I think that this green ideology will just fall apart and decay from within. This is what I think, but it's not coming next year. Okay, we'll see how it develops. Vyacheslav Kremlik, thank you so much for joining Mind the Shift and good luck with your book now. Thank you very much. See you next time. Thank you.